Today's episode is part two of the Lynette White murder. So if you're only joining us now, then definitely go back and give that episode a listen first. Just a quick recap for us all, last week was super confusing, so I do think we need one. Lynette White was a 20-year-old prostitute living in the area of Cardiff, Wales, known as Tiger Bay. On February 14th, 1988, her mutilated body was found in a flat lent to her by a friend. She had 69 stab wounds and had been slit from ear to ear, with her head barely still attached. Witnesses said that they saw a white man with brown hair covered in blood outside the property, not long after the estimated time of death. But racist police officers who just wanted this case off of their desks arrested five black men, none of whom had any forensic evidence linked to them. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We ended the last episode with the three men who'd been convicted being exonerated and released. However, police said that they wouldn't be reopening the case nor would the police officers involved be held accountable. In fact, they went as far as to say that the inquiry into Lynette's death had been efficient and effective, and they stood by their conclusion. In fact, they actually said that the Cardiff Three had been let out on a technicality. Now, I said at the time that the lives of the five men were never the same after being let out, largely due to that statement. Rumour and gossip continued about all five men's guilt, as no one else had been caught and the police felt that they had arrested the correct culprits. John Acty told journalists that after the verdict, so just quickly remember he was one of the two that were found not guilty, he was sent an annual delivery of Valentine's Day cards branding him a murderer. He told the reporter that he stopped going out at night after being stabbed, bottled and glassed. Tony Paris, who was one of the Cardiff Three that was sentenced, also said that he stopped socialising on his release to avoid abuse. 
So their acquittals hadn't given them their freedom back at all. However, they did have many supporters who were convinced of their innocence and that the original e-fit of the white male suspect was accurate. Side note, when you see the e-fit and the picture of the killer side by side, you will be gobsmacked at the similarity. Again, those pictures will be available on the podcast's Facebook group. The new millennium arrived and with it new senior members of the South Wales Police Force, two of which included Professor Dave Barclay and Chief Superintendent Kevin O'Neill. Professor Barclay was in the forensic department and Kevin O'Neill was obviously, like I said, a chief superintendent and he expected that the officers under him comply with ethical policing, not based on gut instincts, but rather the information known to them. While he was reviewing cold cases, he was quoted as saying, I looked at the papers and knew that the Cardiff Five hadn't done it. There was no way they'd done it because police couldn't even put them at the scene. There simply wasn't any evidence, end quote. Coupled with this new wave of policing and calls for the investigation to be reopened, in September 2000, that is exactly what happened. Forensic scientists led by a woman named Angela Gallup discovered fresh evidence. Examining old crime scene photographs, forensics eyes were drawn to a large drop of blood believed to have flown off a knife onto the wallpaper under the window of the flat where Lynette was killed. Police had removed lots of the wallpaper in the flat at the time to store as evidence, but there was a problem. The piece of wallpaper where the large drop of cast-off blood had landed was the one piece that was missing. It was nowhere to be found. Forensics continued to study the photos and realised that actually some of the blood could still be behind the skirting board beneath. And guess what? It was. The team found this blood had been completely sealed in and dried for the 12 years since the crime. They also retested a condom box and a piece of cellophane that had come from a cigarette packet, finding minute traces of blood which matched the blood from behind the skirting board. From that point on, the suspect became known as Cellophane Man by both police and forensic scientists. A clean, clear DNA profile was built through 13 separate sources of blood that they'd found. Excitedly, they put it through the UK's national DNA database, convinced that this was it, this was finally going to be when they caught Cellophane Man. So remember the blood found was type AB, so it's unusual and rare, meaning, like I said, that they thought, oh, bingo, we're going to get him straight away, we're going to get a hit straight away on that DNA database. But no, absolutely nothing, no hits whatsoever on all 140 of the police databases. They'd hit a brick wall. A brick wall that stayed there until January 2002, so that's another two years later. A new development in DNA testing had been discovered. It was software that could take the DNA profile from the crime and match it against other people's DNA in the system that could be a relative. It's honestly really, really fascinating stuff. So if you want to look into it, it's called familial DNA. So using this process of familial DNA searching, a partial match was eventually made with the profile of a 14-year-old boy who was known to the police for minor petty crimes. From what I could find, I think he'd stolen a car, taken it for a joyride, something like that. But, obviously, 
he hadn't been born, or maybe just about born, at the time of the murder of Lynette. Police headed straight to the boy's address. Once there, they found out that his dad was actually dead, but he did have an uncle. An uncle named Geoffrey Gaffour. Geoffrey Gaffour had always been a loner, and at school he had very few friends and quite literally none in his adult life. He was born on May 28th in 1965 to Royce Gaffour and Jeanette Gaffour, and he was the youngest of five children. His early life was spent in a suburb of Cardiff, and his childhood was pretty unremarkable, nothing to write home about at all. At the age of 17, he joined a youth opportunity programme in Tiger Bay, where he noticed the prostitutes in the area soliciting passers-by. At the time of Lynette's murder in 1988, Geoffrey was 22, so he was only two years older than Lynette was, and he was living and working at the family's grocer shop. His sister remembers him as hardly ever going out, either spending his time working, reading or watching TV. Except on Valentine's Day in 1988. He met Lynette and ended up with her in the flat where she met her fate. He handed over £30 but then had a change of heart and Lynette refused to give him the money back. Jeffrey's response to this was to brutally stab her in a frenzied attack. So frenzied that he left his own blood at the scene. Although the eyewitnesses that gave the EFIT description remembered a man covered in blood crying, if Jeffrey had felt any remorse, he didn't let it show. His life continued basically more or less as the same as before. He studied martial arts but gave it up after a few months. All I can imagine is that he must have simply shrugged off the publicity as the Cardiff Three were wrongly convicted and watched those three innocent men be sent to prison for life with not a care in the world. The entire area was consumed with Lynette's case, so there is no way at all that he wouldn't have known what was going on. In 1991, he went to work in Germany for his brother-in-law, and during his time there, he would get super offended and easily annoyed by pornography. He also never looked for or had any female company, shall we say. In 1993, he came back to Cardiff, but he'd left home not long after he came back, after his mum died, and at that point, he drifted apart from the rest of his family. The move was one of the biggest changes in his life, and that date was significant, as it was just six weeks after the Cardiff Three were released from prison on appeal. For nine years, he didn't see a single member of his family again. He had zero ties, no ties to anybody at all, and was essentially living a reclusive lifestyle. After moving out, he initially lived in the back of a van, and then he moved to various different flats. He worked as a security guard, usually doing about 12-hour shifts, purely because the solitary, unsociable nature of the job meant that he could have that solitude that he wanted. So no one really knew him. Interestingly, just backtracking slightly, in 1992, he actually got arrested and pleaded guilty to an offence of unlawful wounding. He'd assaulted another security guard, hitting him on the head with half a brick after literally just a minor argument. He was given 80 hours of community service. And I'm assuming his DNA wasn't taken because, as we know, in September 2000, they didn't find a match on the system. He was a loner, yes, but definitely not unintelligent. In his house were apparently 10 Bibles and a lot of coded notebooks, which during my research I couldn't find if those coded notebooks had ever been deciphered. 
Neighbours in the village where he had lived since January 2001 said they very rarely saw him, especially in the daytime. And all that they really knew about him was that he would regularly go to car boot and jumble sales. On February 26, 2003, detectives pulled up outside of Jeffrey's home, a red brick semi-detached house in a village 15 miles west of Cardiff. But no one was in. So, the following day, police went to Jeffrey's place of work, which was an office block in the city centre of Cardiff, where he was currently working as a security guard. When they got there, they explained that they were conducting inquiries into Lynette's death, and he was quoted as saying, Oh, I thought you got some guys for that. Police then asked for a mouth swab, and Jeffrey happily complied. I just wonder if he was exhausted with the weight of knowing deep down what he had done, because he didn't resist the police at all, even surely knowing that this mouth swab would 100% prove that he had been the one to murder Lynette. And it did. The cellophane man had been found. While they're waiting for the results to come back from the swab, a surveillance team was put on Jeffrey and preparations were made so that once they interviewed him, it could be held without any hitches whatsoever. The plan had been to watch him for about a week, which is how long it would take for the DNA results to come back. But only hours into the surveillance, Chief Superintendent Kevin O'Neill, who we mentioned at the start, got a call from his team saying that they had just watched Jeffrey buy three packets of paracetamol. And unless he had one heck of a headache, they were pretty sure he was going to do something. When police entered the house, he'd already managed to swallow 62 of the tablets. Initially, he denied to police that he had taken anything. But then he suddenly said, quote, Just for the record, I did kill Lynette White. I've been waiting for this for 15 years. So whatever happens, I deserve it. I sincerely hope to die. End quote. He was taken to hospital and in the ambulance he told paramedics that this might be his last two days on earth and he was quite looking forward to seeing if God or the devil existed. Then in the hospital he was heard telling staff the reason they're worried is because I killed someone 15 years ago and they want me alive to stand trial. Actually it's quite a relief being found out not having to hide anymore. At least I can die with a clear conscience for what it's worth. He then began to be violently sick and eventually agreed to let the doctors help. Within a few days, he had recovered. Like I said, when people saw the EFIT and then Jeffrey, you did not need to be a forensic expert to see the resemblance. At the age of 38, he pled guilty, and are you ready for this? Was sentenced to a minimum of 13 years in prison and would be eligible for parole in 2020. Yes, my jaw hit the floor too. Honestly, I <laughs> I read it a couple of times because I was like, that just cannot be correct. 13 years. The Cardiff 3 had been given life with the possibility of no parole, but the actual killer, with all the forensic evidence linking him, could be out after 13 years. It's just mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Thankfully, though, in 2020, he was denied release. But... Sadly, there is a but. He was moved to an open prison, which again, I know I keep saying this, but that frankly itself is mind-blowing. If you don't know much about open prisons, definitely look it up. Some open prisons, the inmate has a key to their cell or room. I don't even think they call it a cell in an open prison. I think they just call it a room. They can participate in activities outside of prison. There's minimal supervision, etc. 
and Geoffrey has taken part in activities that have given him day release from the facility that he's in. And as you can imagine, that has not gone down well in the community that Lynette was from, and also hasn't gone down well with the families of the men that were wrongly convicted. In fact, the daughter of Tony Paris, one of the so-called Cardiff Three, has launched a petition to keep him in jail. She was quoted as saying, he should never step foot outside again and rot in prison like he and the police were willing to let my father do. And you know what? I do not blame her because I still can't wrap my head around the fact that he was given a minimum of 13 years. So he could have easily gotten out because he could have been granted parole. So as it stands today, the parole board have rejected his appeal to be let out permanently but they don't feel that he needs to be in a maximum security prison anymore. And it's 100% fine for him to be allowed out on day release. I don't know about you, but I really need a moment to let that madness sink in. So what about the police officers who arrested the Cardiff Five? And what about Leanne, Angela, Paul and Mark? Again, if you don't remember last week, quick recap. The police officers, as we know, just interrogated them to the point where they just had no choice, I guess. They were exhausted and completely beaten down that they confessed. And Leanne, Angela, Paul and Mark were the ones that went into court and testified, saying that, yes, they had seen those exact men killing Lynette, which we know was a complete lie. Well, in November 2004, after Jeffrey's arrest, the IPCC agreed to reinvestigate the now-retired police officers who had conducted the original inquiries. In April 2005, five retired officers were arrested, charged with false imprisonment, conspiring to pervert the course of justice and misconduct in public office. Later that same month, another four officers were arrested. The following month, three more. So by the end of the investigation, 19 current and retired officers were arrested in total. It would be the largest police corruption trial in British criminal history. Sadly though, corruption hasn't changed one single bit. The entire trial was corrupt with the prosecution, you know, the lawyers who are supposed to want the bad guys locked up, withholding key evidence, proving the officer's guilt. They said to the judge that the documents had been destroyed when in fact they were sitting in a box of a detective chief inspector's office and the prosecution knew this. In the end, the prosecution informed the court that they just couldn't build their case and there was no choice but for the jury to give a not guilty verdict. A journalist who has written extensively about Lynette's case said, it's a sad, sad day for justice when you can't ever prosecute police officers successfully if you can't do it in a case like this. And he's right. If this wasn't going to be the case where police would go down for corruption, then I don't know what case it would ever happen in. It was as clear as the driven snow, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, it's actually been called the biggest scandal in the history of British justice. If the 13 accused detectives had been found guilty, all of their previous cases, which were hundreds, would have had to be reopened and re-examined, and I guess the powers that be didn't want that happening. Instead, all 13 are retired on full police pensions. And not only that, but seven of the 13 sued for damage to their reputations. You literally couldn't make this entire case up. But I will just say, thankfully, those lawsuits weren't successful, so they didn't get a dime. 
In February 2007, Leanne, Angela, Paul and Mark were all charged with perjury. But in December 2008, all except Paul were found guilty and sentenced to 18 months in prison. Paul was found unfit to stand trial, so he got nothing. When giving out their sentences, the judge explained that the reason for being so lenient was that he accepted that they were seriously hounded, bullied, threatened, abused and manipulated by the police over a period of several months leading up to the end of 1988, which as a result made them compelled to agree to false accounts that had been suggested to them. But he did say that it was still perjury, so a punishment was necessary. Frankly, I don't think justice has been served for Lynette or the five men wrongly accused. The entire thing was and is still a mess. Thanks for listening. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe.